Psalm 150, praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty firmament, praise him for his mighty acts, praise him for his, according to his excellent greatness, praise him with the sound of the trumpet, praise him with the heart and the loop, praise him with the timbrel and the dance, praise him with stringed instruments and flutes, praise him with loud cymbals, praise him with clashing cymbals, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Hallelujah, amen, and praise the Lord. All right, today is one of those sermons, whenever I practice a sermon during the week and I uh, think, gee whiz, I just don't want to do this sermon, somebody comes up and says, I like that sermon. And whenever I'm very excited about a sermon, people are generally more quiet when I leave. And today will probably be that for you. I apologize in advance. This is the kind of thing that I like. And so if I like it, it's usually something that other people must think, what is Charlie thinking? But it is Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Free to will or not free to will? That is the question. If you all remember Jacob Marley in Dickens' classic, A Christmas Carol, he was the friend, he was the co-worker of Ebenezer Scrooge, who had died many years before and who returned as a ghost to warn Ebenezer. When Scrooge asked him about the chains that he was bound in, he said this, I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on of my own free will and of my own free will I wore it. Marley acknowledged that he exercised free will to his own detriment. While studying quotes for this particular sermon I was surprised to find how many people on both sides of the religious spectrum that deny free will. Believe it or not there are even atheists who deny free will. You talk about a contradiction in the thought process. How can somebody claim that there is no God, nothing but the universe, and then deny the choices that they make belong to them alone? If the atheist does not have free will, then something must be directing him. If there is something beyond him directing him, no matter what it is, it is greater than he is. So atheism at its core is a morally deficient and corrupt thought process. For an atheist to ascribe his decisions to the interaction of atoms, as I read in one commentary, is simply to pass a red herring over the question. Either the will is free or it's not free, regardless of the makeup of the decider of the decision. And then there are multitudes of Christians who not only deny free will, but who claim that people who state that they have free will are actually enemies of God. This guy E.W. Best said this, God's character is maligned by every person who believes in free will. Now I have to ask, how does free will malign God's character? This is a hugely important thing to understand. Why we have free will and to be able to defend it from the Bible. The reason is twofold. First, if man does not have free will, as Mr. Best claims, then God must be the ultimate author of evil. How someone can come to any other conclusion than this when reading the Bible is astounding. And secondly, if we do not freely choose Jesus as he asks us to, such as in John 3:16, then God is forcing us to love him. It doesn't matter how corrupt we are, it doesn't matter how deep the pit from which he pulls us up out of. If he does it against our own free will, then it is not allowing a demonstration of love and devotion on our part. And this is exactly what both testaments of the Bible expect from us. 
R.C. Sproul, who is a modern Presbyterian theologian, a very intelligent man, is a free will denier. He once said this, if intent is sin, as when Jesus said, he who looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart, then Adam fell before the fall because he sinned before eating of the forbidden fruit by intending to eat the forbidden fruit. So the question is, whence comes free will? Yeah, R.C., where does free will come from? Or where does evil come from? I'm sorry, I said free will, I meant evil. If you deny free will, then this is a gigantic problem because God supposedly created everything good. I mean, if he created man already intent on evil, then you have a real dilemma. But that is Dr. Sproul's conundrum. Thomas Aquinas, the 13th century theologian, said this about free will. Man has choice, or otherwise counsels, exhortations, commands, prohibitions, rewards, punishments would be in vain. And we find every one of those in the Bible. Therefore, they would be in vain if we don't have free will. The Bible then is a book of choices. As much as it is anything else, free will is implied on almost every page and certainly in every account that it records. The verses which seem to deny free will, and free will deniers do have a lot of them, need to be taken in the context of God's sovereignty, his foreknowledge, and his love. Here's a text verse for today, which many free will deniers will use to claim that man doesn't have free will. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. May God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Point number one today is the choice in the garden. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Toba Beda wisely stated, if there was no free will in men, then there is no sins. When sins happened, it was free will that made them doable. This is true unless God has predestined humans to do and to have sins. R.C. Sproul reads this particular account from Genesis and he cannot comprehend how Adam actually fell. He has a couple of reasons. First, he cannot accept that man has free will. His doctrine tells him that man is incapable of doing anything good. This is a state known in theology as total depravity. He misreads or misinterprets verses of the Bible which tell of our fallen state and our inability to fix the mess that we are in, and he equates that with our inability to do anything on our part to get out of that mess. And then secondly, he knows very well that he cannot ascribe evil to God, as no sound theologian ever could or ever would, and therefore he is left with his amazing and his unanswerable question, which is, whence comes evil? But this is a problem of the heart, and it is a problem of conditioning. It is not an unfathomable mystery that God can only answer. Rather, it is a revealed truth right in the pages of the Bible and right in the verses that I just read. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. There are three major points that we need to review in this particular point. Point number one is you may. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, 
but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Mikol etz agan, akol tochal, ume etz adat, tovara lo tochal mimenu. Now there is a lot of information that we can glean from this one particular sentence. First, there were multiple trees in the garden and they were graciously granted to Adam. Second, man was given the freedom to choose. As it says, you may freely eat. And third, only after acknowledging Adam's free will was he told what he could not eat. Now this verse contains the very first words that were ever recorded as spoken by God directly to man. And it certainly indicates him possessing free will. You may eat. And may indicates a choice. It's neutral as well. In other words, you may eat or you may not eat. It is up to you, Adam. Snack on whatever you'd like, except this one thing. If I'm leaving my house and I say to my sitter while I go out on vacation, sitter, the refrigerator is full and you may eat whatever you want in the refrigerator. If I came back and the fridge was empty and I had given no other instructions, I could only say, gee, sitter, you had a big appetite. You even ate all of the dog food that was in the Tupperware. And if I came back and the refrigerator was still full, I might think the sitter was good at restraining herself, but at least I offered the food to her. We come to point two, you shall not. Shall not indicates a choice as well. Because there is a tree there. Were shall not, not a choice, God would have put no tree there at all, or he would have made the tree inaccessible. Maybe he could have put some type of force field around it. I don't know, like in Star Wars, he puts a force field around the tree so that Adam can't get to it. Or he could have had the cherubim guard the tree like he would later guard the garden. But if that was the case, he would have said, you cannot eat of this tree, or he wouldn't have said anything at all because the point was moot. What if I said to my house sitter, sitter, I'm only going to be gone for two days, so don't eat the food in my fridge. She still has the choice to eat it, but it would be done out of disobedience, and she would have to face whatever consequences I determined. If I wanted to make absolutely sure that my sitter didn't eat the food in there, I could put a lock on my refrigerator, I could leave nothing in the refrigerator, or I could hire a security guard to guard the refrigerator. No matter what I did, unless I acted first, the implication is that she could use her own free will, even though she wasn't supposed to. Everything so far in this account implies that there is free will in man. God did not keep the tree from Adam, but he simply warned him to keep away from it. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, no temptation has overtaken you, such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. God certainly gave Adam a choice in the matter and he also provided a way of escape. There was no burden beyond his ability to bear. And that brings us to point three in this particular point, the knowledge of good and evil. To finish our three points of this particular verse, we return to the thought from whence comes evil. What we need to do is to simply think these verses through. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Man was given free will. 
from the context of what we've looked at so far, this is absolutely certain. And those who deny this point have failed to come to the text with clear eyes. And instead, they're wearing either rose-colored glasses or blue glasses or whatever. They are not seeing the page as white. And they preach and teach from such a clear and obvious and carefully worded statement from God. However, this free will was given and it was exercised in a state of innocence. If he hadn't eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then he didn't have what? He didn't have the knowledge of good and evil. In fact, as we'll see in chapter 3, when we get there, two obvious things occurred when Adam ate of the fruit. First, he became more like God, not less, at least in one sense. And secondly, he became aware of right and wrong. It says here, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. Adam was told to not eat of this particular fruit or he would be punished. At the time, he was in a state of innocence, not knowing good from evil. But innocence, as I said in the sermon last week, does not negate guilt. And that brings us to our next major point today. Point number two is disobedience is sin and sin leads to death. The great philosopher and author of the last century, C.S. Lewis, said this about free will. God created things which had free will. That means creatures which can go right or wrong. Some people think they can imagine a creature which was free but had no possibility of going wrong. But I can't. If a thing is free to be good, it is also free to be bad. And free will is what has made evil possible. Why then did God give them free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. Of course God knew what would happen if they used their freedom the wrong way. Apparently, he thought it worth the risk. If God thinks this state of war in the universe is a price worth paying for free will, that is for making a real world in which creatures can do real good or real harm and something of real importance can happen instead of a toy world which only moves when he pulls the strings, then we may take it. It is worth paying. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. As I said, innocence in no way sets aside guilt. The speed limit on the way home when you leave here is going to vary from time to time and place to place as you pull out. And when you first pull out on the Midnight Pass Road, you are not going to see a speed limit. So if you go 40 miles an hour thinking that you're okay, you may actually get a ticket. And the reason why is because it doesn't turn 40 miles an hour until you get down about two turns. Now, if a cop pulls you over and says you were speeding, you might try to defend yourself by saying, but there was no sign from the time I pulled out on the Midnight Pass until now. Do you think that guy is going to say, okay, never mind, that's my bad? No, of course not. You are responsible for knowing the laws of the road, and you are responsible for obeying the laws of the load. road. Your lack of knowledge does not excuse your guilt. And I can give you a perfect point. My daughter was going up to New Jersey a few weeks ago. On the way to New Jersey, a camera took a picture of her car going over the speed limit. And when I called her and said, you have a ticket? She says, I didn't get a ticket. And I said, yes, you did. Because your knowledge, your lack of knowledge concerning the speed limit or your purposeful violation of it doesn't negate your guilt. You are guilty and you have to pay this ticket. What Adam did was an innocence. 
because he had no knowledge of right and wrong. However, he had his warning clearly laid out for him. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Just as every driver knows that a ticket is waiting for the speeder, Adam knew that death would come from disobeying God's law. But I want you all to know that this brings up a point that we should not miss. Adam had never died and he had never experienced death around him. When he was told that death would result from disobedience, he had no way of understanding death's implications. If you tell a child that doesn't understand death that they can die from something, they have no idea what you're talking about until you explain it to them. Without the knowledge of good and evil, Adam could not comprehend death because death is the result of evil. He couldn't even comprehend it if you explained it to him. Again though, for the third time, this innocence does not relieve him of the consequences of guilt. Guilt comes about from disobedience and death results from guilt. And James explains this very well in his small epistle, which is 59 books into the Bible, when he writes these words. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Adam was placed in the garden, he was given instructions. And when God placed the tree there that he was not supposed to eat from, it was not God's fault that Adam disobeyed. God in no way tempted Adam. He created everything and therefore everything is exactly as he purposes. And plus, he gave Adam the warning. Now, this example that I'm gonna give you is very important to comprehend. If he wanted to make every tree in that garden forbidden, except for one tree, and that one tree could sustain Adam's life, then that would have been fine. Instead, he allowed every tree but one. How much more is God clear of Adam's sin? On the other hand, if God made Adam the way that he did, knowing that Adam needed to eat and to drink in order to survive, and then he forbade Adam from eating or drinking anything at all, that God would be guilty of tempting Adam and forcing him into sin. That was not the case. If a mother said to her newborn baby, you'd better not cry, baby, or I'm gonna punish you, mom would be guilty both morally and criminally of abuse. And the same may be said about one of my sermons. If I said, if I catch you sleeping during the sermon, I'm gonna punish you, you would probably have a very good case against me. But Adam had no case against God, not even a hint of it. As David wrote after his horrendous sin of adultery and murder against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. And that brings us to point number three today. One command and in the negative. T.H. White in the once and future king said this, there was just such a man when I was young, an Austrian who invented a new way of life and convinced himself that he was the chap to make it work. He tried to impose his reformation by the sword and plunge the civilized world into misery and chaos. But one thing which this fellow had overlooked, my friend, was that he had a predecessor in the reformation business called Jesus Christ. Perhaps we may assume that Jesus knew as much as the Austrian did about saving people. 
But the odd thing is that this Jesus did not turn the disciples into stormtroopers, burn down the temple in Jerusalem, and also fix the blame on Pontius Pilate. On the contrary, he made it clear that the business of the philosopher was to make ideas available and not to impose them on people. The Bible is just a book of do's and don'ts. I suppose every one of you has heard that said at one time or another, and it is not really. Instead, at least on these lines, it is a book of choices. Do's and don'ts are involved in every one of those choices, but in the context, they are set out for our good. If there is a do, it is there to keep us following the right path. If there is a don't, it is to keep us from going off onto the wrong path. When a mother says to her son, don't put that screwdriver on the wall outlet, she is saying it so he doesn't hurt himself. And when she says to her son that's leaving for the military, remember to go to church on Sunday, she's telling him this to keep him walking in a straight line, in an upright way. In both instances, the choice is his. If he wants to try the screwdriver and the outlet thing, he will wish that he had listened to mom. And if he skips church and he goes to soccer matches while he's stationed in England, he will eventually wish that he had made church the priority. When his life wanders off into meaningless, he'll hopefully understand why his mother asked him to go to church. The book of Proverbs is a lot like this. There are do's and don'ts all through it, but they are stated in the form of choices. Proverbs opens with these words. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, to the young man knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel, to understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. After writing these first words in Proverbs, he pens 31 chapters of wisdom for those who are simply willing to listen, and then he contrasts them with those who turn away from his wise counsel. He says, the complacency of fools will destroy them, but whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. So do's and don'ts are not bad, and they always, they always imply free will. In the case of Adam, he had no do's, and he had one don't. In other words, he had one command, and it was in the negative. Now, if this is the premise of ha Adam having eternal life and remaining in the garden, then there must be a similar premise for returning to that garden. If not, then there might seem to be a problem with the way that God is dealing with his children. One of the hindrances, though, to understanding God's favor of individuals is tied up in the law of Moses. In those five books, meaning Genesis to Deuteronomy, also known as the Torah, there are 613 laws, a lot of do's and don'ts. If there are all of these laws, heaped upon laws, then what God expects of us must be immensely complicated, even burdensome. I mean, who can do all that stuff? And the Lord even said in Leviticus, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And the penalties for failure? I mean, if you slip up under the law, you might get beaten with rods, you might get exiled from the community, you might get stoned to death, and so on. 
These aren't minor issues. And time and time again, right after receiving the laws, right afterward, either individuals or groups go out and they break those very laws. Within just 40 days of receiving the Ten Commandments, Aaron and all of the people of Israel made a gold calf in the place of God, thus violating the first two commandments. When they did this, it cost 3,000 people their lives. There are accounts of people being stoned for blaspheming God's name, for breaking a vow of dedication, and for working on the Sabbath. I mean, this is terrifying stuff that's in the law. What happened to Adam's one command, which is in the negative? And what about the other side of the coin? David committed adultery, and he killed a lady's husband, and he did not get stoned. He allowed his children to get away with things that other people would have been given the death penalty for. And what, did God turn a blind eye to them? And then when David takes a census of the people, admittedly, he shouldn't have done it, but it's not this great offense that you would think of going and counting the number of people in Israel. God sent the destroying angel and killed 70,000 Israelites. How? How does that fit in? Unless you understand the reason why these things occurred and how they fit into the greater picture of what God is doing, you might come to the same conclusion as some other people who call God an evil sadist. But this is the furthest thing from the truth, and it completely misunderstands what God is telling the people of the world. He's telling them free will. Free will. God is telling us about our choices. He's telling us about our free will choices and what the consequences of them are. In the end, he understands our limitations and he understands our faults. He is the one who created us. And he understands the difference between those who love him and their own personal internal struggles, like King David, and those who either ignore him or hate him outright and act against him in a high-handed manner. He understands the difference. What is the reason that David could call, or God could call David a man after my own heart and protect Jerusalem for David's namesake even hundreds of years after he was dead and buried? It was because despite of his faults, despite of his internal struggles, David loved God. And he understood his morally depraved state in the presence of perfect righteousness. Paul explains the law which David was under and its overarching purpose in the book of Galatians. It says this, is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has combined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The law and all of its associated death and punishment was a tool, or better yet, it was a mirror to get us to look at ourselves and to see how desperately sinful we are and that what we needed is something more to be right with God. The law could never give life back to man. Just as Paul said, if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. So what is it that those who under who are under the law 
what is it that they needed? They needed grace. And this is exactly what they got once a year on the Day of Atonement. The very fact that they needed a Day of Atonement meant that they could never meet the demands of the law. And where did the atonement come from? Did it come from the animals that they sacrificed on the Day of Atonement? No. The book of Hebrews says that it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats can take away sins. So think it through. If the Day of Atonement was God's grace to the people and the blood which was shed on that day did not provide the grace, then what did? It was the people's faith in God's provision. So here we go back to Adam. What was Adam lacking from the tree? He was lacking the knowledge of good and evil. Is knowledge faith? No, faith is faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And this is the evidence that God wanted from Adam, the surety of things not seen. This is also what God respected Enoch for. And not only Enoch, but Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Rahab and David and a host of other people who throughout history were sure of what they couldn't see. Was Adam faithful about the promise of surely dying if he ate the fruit? No. Was the man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day faithful about believing that God would provide the other six days? No. Was David faithful when he had Uriah killed after sleeping with his wife Bathsheba? No. Then why was the Sabbath breaker stoned and David allowed to live? Why are some people treated differently than others? Some are examples of God's justice. Some are examples of God's mercy. Some are lessons of high-handed sins, and some are lessons of repentant hearts, like the 51st Psalm that we read earlier. Each case is given to teach us of the many facets of God and the key to obtaining His favor, which is always faith. And faith comes only. It only comes through free will. Forced faith is not faith, as it says in the book of Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, and not of works, lest any man should boast. The construct of that verse tells us that we are saved not by grace alone, and not by faith alone, but by grace and faith together, and that they are a gift of God. A forced gift is not a gift, be it grace or faith, or grace and faith. Rather, these are offered to us by God. They are unmerited and they are available to all people. And that brings us to our final point today. Your choice. Of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Jim Butcher says this about free will. God is not about making good things happen to you or bad things happen to you. He is all about you making the right choices, exercising the gift of free will. God wants you to have good things and a good life, but he won't gift wrap them for you. You have, the, you have to choose the answers that lead you to life. Now, one argument used by Dr. Sproul, who I mentioned earlier, and most others who argue against free will stems from Paul's comments in the book of Romans. 
Here's what he says. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their claim is, if they deny free will, that there is none who seeks after God, meaning that we cannot freely choose Jesus Christ. Free will is nullified in humans based on this verse, according to them. But this quote that Paul gives comes from the Psalms, and in fact it's repeated in two Psalms, in Psalm 14 and in Psalm 53. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. He's speaking of an atheist. The question that I would submit to you is, are Muslims seeking after God? Are Mormons seeking after God? Are Jews seeking after God? Are Buddhists seeking after God? The answer in every case is yes, they are seeking after God. The context of what Paul says in this verse, which comes from the Psalms, is speaking of the atheist. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The problem with people like Muslims and Mormons is not that they are lacking faith. You go to a mall and you blow yourself up expecting to go to heaven, that is demonstrating faith. The problem is that their faith is misdirected. And misdirected faith is wasted faith. One cannot use Paul's verse as an overall claim to deny free will. In fact, exactly the opposite is true because one must freely deny God in order to deny God. In our previous point, I said that in the garden, there was one command and that it was in the negative and that there must be a similar premise for returning to that garden. If not, then there might seem to be a problem with the way God is dealing with his children. And there is a similar premise. You know that? There is one premise for returning to the garden. Paul lays it out in the book of Romans. In the garden, there was one command and it was in the negative. And that command was based on faith. In Christ, there is one request, and it is in the positive, and it is likewise based on faith. I read it to you every single week, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, that sounds like two things, but it's really only one. If you confess Jesus as Lord, it is based on the assumption that Jesus is alive. If he is alive, then God raised him from the dead. I am free to choose, this is known, because to deny that I can is a choice of its own. Free will doesn't claim the place of God. Instead, it exalts him when he judges. Wouldn't it be rather odd to blame on him all of my life's smudges? Perfect and pure is my savior. Undefiled are his ways. My free will is mine alone to withhold from or to give him praise. I can choose to be a fool and deny that he is God, or I can follow Muhammad or Buddha if I choose, or I can give Krishna a favorable nod. But I choose life. I choose Jesus. He alone destroyed the grave, and he is ever here with us. He alone is able our souls to save. Great and worthy, behold the Lamb, sacrificed because of our choices. Let us turn our souls to him and let us to him raise our voices. Thank you, O oh God, for the gift you granted, grace and faith tied into one. Thank you for the greatest gift. Thank you, O oh God, for Jesus, our Lord.
your son. Hallelujah and amen. Thank you for Jesus, our Lord, your son. And there is one way to heaven, and that is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if anybody listening on the video or anywhere else here today has never called on the name of Jesus, all you have to do is simply, by faith, ask God to forgive you of your sins, to wash you in the blood of Jesus Christ, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be eternally saved. God will reconcile you to himself through his own son who bore what you deserve on the cross. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for that gift that Jesus Christ gave. And thank you that, yes, it is a free will choice and that each one of us is given that choice. You don't force your love on us, but you offer it graciously. You don't force salvation on any human being, but you offer it graciously. And all we need to do is by faith accept it. Lord God, there is nothing more perfect than what you have done for your children on the face of this earth. And we thank you for it and we love you and we praise you in the exalted name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.